He handed over hundreds of pages of his private journals and years' worth of personal correspondence, including sensitive emails with some of the most powerful Republicans in the country. When he couldn't find the key to an old filing cabinet that contained some of his personal papers, he took a crowbar to it and deposited stacks of campaign documents and legal pads in my lap. He'd kept all this stuff, he explained, because he thought he might write a memoir one day, but he'd decided against it. I can't be objective about my own life, he said. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And that passage is from the new book Romney, A Reckoning by McKay Coppins. In the spring of 2021, Coppins began meeting with Utah Senator Mitt Romney. And as that passage indicates, it was clear that Romney wanted to, even needed to talk, perhaps even unburden himself. Over the course of more than 40 interviews, Romney shared, with candor almost unimaginable for a politician, his personal reckoning in the age of Donald Trump and the reckoning that he hopes and prays will come to the Republican Party. And McKay Coppins joins us now. McKay, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Meghna. Well, I want to start off with an image of the Mitt Romney that maybe most people don't know, but it just rings so clearly in your book. In his Senate office, he has a particular map on the wall that he tends to show mm. everyone who comes into the office. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, he showed it to me in one of our early meetings. It's called the Histo map, and uh, it essentially aims to chart the rise and fall of the most powerful civilizations throughout human history. So you have the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans. Um, and when he first hung it on his his office wall, it was when he he had arrived in the Senate in 2019. And he, he kind of saw it as a curiosity. But after January 6th, he sort of became obsessed with it. And he would bring it up in speeches and interviews, and he would show it to everybody who came to his office, including me. And the thing that stuck out to him was the, the fact that if you look through all of human history, it's very rare that democracy is thriving. Right. The, he said, if you look at this map, it's one form of autocracy after another. You have kings and emperors and kaisers and rulers. And uh, that seems to be the default of human history. And his takeaway from that, from looking at that map and from the last several years, is that this um, project that we're engaged in in America is much more fragile than we we realize. Mm. That the 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 future of democracy in America and and around the world is something that we all take for granted, uh, but that that we probably shouldn't, given what we've seen, especially in the last several years. Mm. Well, uh, your book so clearly lays out why Senator Romney feels that way uh, uh, in in this day and age. But I also was so struck by the access that he gave you, McKay, um, and you describe, mm. I don't know, there's there's scenes of profound loneliness in the book, especially uh, uh, in 2020, 2021. You know, you describe his uh, Washington uh, condo, I guess, is he's basically living there alone. <laughs> there's a freezer full of salmon mm. from Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. <laughs> they does, he doesn't even like salmon and a giant TV. 
and him. I mean, what was his his mood? What do you think his motivation was um, that mm. came across to you in your, what, 40-plus interviews with him? Yeah, I remember that was one of the most striking things when I started this process of interviewing him was just how isolated he was in Washington. You know, he this is a guy who... He has a, a you know five sons, a, a huge gaggle of grandkids, even great grandkids. But in Washington, he doesn't have a lot of friends. He's not a guy who uh, you know goes out and to the you know galas and functions and has dinners with important people. Um, in, in those first uh, weeks. I was struck by kind of the bachelor pad quality of his townhouse. <laughs> he, he he would spend a lot of nights alone eating dinner on this leather recliner while watching this giant TV he had hung on the wall in his living room. And, you know, the some of the reasons for the isolation are obvious. He's, he's kind of become a pariah in the Republican Party. He doesn't get along with many people in his caucus uh, in the Trump era. He doesn't really fit in with the Democrats either. And what was interesting is, as a you know journalist biographer, is I would go over to his house every week one night, um, and I would sit down and I would often get to the end of my questions, and then he would want me to stay longer. Like he would, he would say, "Well, what are you reading? Or you know, are you watching anything good on TV?" His kind of loneliness worked to my advantage to a certain extent because he he was you know he enjoyed the company, but also I think he wanted to unburden himself. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of there to listen to him. Did he, did you sense, a, I don't know, a kind of uh, lament or regret in him? I, I, you know, I, yes, is the the short answer. I mean, what, what was interesting about him is that when I, when I first went to him, uh, you know, it was just weeks removed from January 6th. And I pitched him on the idea of, of doing this book. And, I had known the Mitt Romney for most of his political career who was extremely disciplined and extremely controlled and stuck to his talking points and, you know, almost never uh, exposed what was going on beneath the surface, right? I had covered his presidential campaigns and and I sensed that that after January 6th, he was going through something. He He seemed like he was in this introspective, soul-searching mood. He was taking stock of what had happened to his party in the Trump era. He was taking stock of what was happening to the country, but he was also asking himself difficult questions Mm -hmm. about his own career, about his embrace of, and, you know, kind of coddling of uh, certain elements of his party. And and so I, you know, I, I could sense that he was asking those difficult questions as a writer. That's kind of the perfect place for your subject to, to be in, right? That, that headspace is is really compelling. And what I found so compelling about him is that he didn't have all the answers, but he was asking himself these hard mm. questions that very few people who are still in office, who, you know, sitting politicians are willing to ask yeah. themselves. So your book lays out in detail the various influences and events that have led Senator Romney to the place that he is now. Um, One of the most positive influences that the senator talks about or talked about to you uh, is his father, George uh, Romney, governor, former governor of uh, Michigan back in the 1960s, uh, and really a strong opposer to the likes of Let's call a, call him a proto-Trump, Barry Goldwater, right? The right-wing senator from Arizona. <laughs> yes. 
Um, so I first want to play uh, a little bit of tape from George Romney at the Republican National Convention, July 14th, 1964. In 1854, Lincoln said, quote, As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read, quote, all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, and these are still Lincoln's words, when it comes to this, I shall prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty to Russia, for example, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of democracy. Those are Lincoln's own words. That's George Romney, Governor George Romney, in, on July 14th, 1964, at the Republican National Convention. Of course, Barry Goldwater, later on, just a couple of days later, won the Republican uh, nomination and, and famously said, I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. McKay, Tell us a little bit more about why Mitt Romney's father, George, looms so large in his life. Hmm. Well, what's interesting about that moment, that audio you just played, is that Mitt was there at that convention as a teenager. Um, he had accompanied his dad, who was the kind of, you know, a champion of what was then a, a still a fairly robust but shrinking liberal wing of the Republican Party. He was an advocate of civil rights. He was an opponent of uh, the the rising uh, Barry Goldwater right wing movement, and um, you know Mitt uh, accompanied his dad to that convention, and watched as the the party kind of transformed around them in real time. Right, George Romney thought that he could get to that convention and uh, insert a plank in uh, 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 advocating for civil rights to the platform. He thought that he could uh, get a resolution passed from the RNC condemning extremism. And both of those initiatives failed. And Mitt recalled to me sort of walking around that convention and seeing that th this growing conservative movement in the party uh, was not the party that he had been led to believe they were a part of. And uh, on the final night of the convention, uh, you know, you, you, you quoted it, Barry Goldwater gave that famous speech, um, and everybody in the convention hall stood up to, to applaud uh, the nomination of Barry Goldwater, and George Romney remained quietly seated with his hands in his laps, in, in his lap, and Mitt remembered looking at him and thinking, uh, if all these people are cheering and my dad's not, they're all wrong and my dad's right. And it just speaks to the extent to which George Romney sort of loomed over Mitt's career as, but but in an interesting way because George's legacy as this sort of you know truth-telling liberal Republican standing uh, up against the the forces of extremism in his own party, both inspired and at times haunted Mitt in his mm -hmm. own career because he he saw his dad's. Uh, his dad's courageous stand as something to be admired, but also recognized that there were many times in his own career when he didn't live up to that same legacy, and uh, it, and it, it, it ate at him in some ways. Right. 
Well, here's a little foreshadowing about what's coming later in our conversation, McKay, because it's so fascinating to hear that in 1964, a young Mitt Romney watched his father give that speech, felt the creeping extremism in the Republican Party, and yet over the course of the following decades, continued to be surprised as that extremism grew. So I'm going to want to hear from you why when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash On Point today to get 10% off your first month. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and McKay Coppins is our guest today. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the new book, Romney, A Reckoning, a biography of Republican Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. It's an incredibly insightful uh, and intimate look at uh, Senator Romney, his career and trajectory, and also the trajectory of the Republican Party. And we have an excerpt of uh, McKay's book at onpointradio.org. Now, of course, McKay, one of the things that uh, Senator Romney is known for is that he's probably the best known uh, politician who's also a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, right? His his LDS faith mm. is very central to his life. And um, I just want to play a moment from Romney's first presidential run back in 2008. And at that time, he was regularly advised, you know, as you as you write in the book, that his Mormon faith would definitely hurt his chances of winning the Oval Office. But here's what Romney said on December 6, 2007, in a speech entitled Faith in America that he gave at the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library in College Station, Texas. They would prefer it if I would simply distance myself from my religion, say that it's more a tradition than my personal conviction, or disavow one or another of its precepts. That I will not do. I believe in my Mormon faith, and I endeavor to live by it. My faith is the faith of my fathers. I will be true to them and to my beliefs. Some believe that such a confession of my faith will sink my candidacy. If they're right, so be it. Mitt Romney in 2007 there. So first of all, McKay, give us some examples of how uh, Senator Romney indeed did act in complete accord with the tenets of of the Church of Latter-day Saints vis-a-vis his political career. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, in his personal life, he was constantly, uh, you know, endeavoring to live by the, the teachings of his faith. He, you know, has a... 
a, a very solid, good marriage to his high school sweetheart. Um, they've raised five kids. He's served extensively on a volunteer basis in the church uh, as a as a lay church leader in the Boston area. Um, in in his political life, it's it's more complicated, right? You know, in in two thousand eight, he he was constantly on the campaign trail encountering people, especially in the Republican primary elected evangelicals, who saw his his faith as a deal breaker, right? In, in fact, he, he told me about one meeting he had with a, um, a, a group of faith leaders, I believe it was in South Carolina, uh, where one of them said flatly, look, you seem like a nice guy. I agree with you on a lot of issues. But at the end of the day, uh, it, it, I, I'm not ever going to support you because I believe that if a Mormon becomes president, more people will go to hell. Um, and, and so that's what Mitt Romney was was up against, right? Um, in in that election in 2008 and 2012, he 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 always stuck to his faith. It, it was kind of a non-negotiable for him. Um, and and I think that's interesting because on almost every other issue or at least on policy issues he was he didn't have nearly the same level of conviction mm-hmm. he he believed that on policy uh there were usually a range of reasonable positions you could take and you know my impression from having talked to him and talked to a lot of people around him is that basically his he he decided look if i can take one reasonable position over another and it gets me a little closer to the white house what's the harm in that and that's why that you know he, he why he was kind of tagged early on in his his career as a flip flopper or somebody who lacked conviction i think when it came to his faith it was central to who he was and he never abandoned it he never negotiated on it but on on policy issues he was much less uh, stalwart but of course these are uh personal belief in in one's faith and um, political ambitions aren't necessarily two things that you can draw a clean line between, right? Mm -hmm. Because, Mm -hmm. of course, we should note that uh, Senator Romney spent quite a few years as governor of the state of Massachusetts. And as you very accurately recount in the book, he for sure moderated his public views on certain things in order to you know more to please the Massachusetts state electorate right specifically on yep. on gay rights on abortion later on uh during his presidential campaign he very infamously had that comment about the 40% of the country being um being takers right mm-hmm. uh that haunted him quite a quite a uh quite a great deal I mean, we can pick a lot of examples. Those are just three that stand out to me. But I wonder, so what doesn't Mormonism have very clear things to say about public expressions of one's convictions? And if and if so, how did Romney then rationalize being a flip flopper in order to, you know, justify a means to an end? Well, there's this interesting moment in his very first campaign when he's running for Senate in Massachusetts, and he's up against Ted Kennedy. So, you know, Ted Kennedy, of course, a legend in Massachusetts, going to be a difficult fight, right? And his advisors tell him right at the beginning, there is no way you can win this race unless you're pro-choice. And he was personally opposed to abortion for moral and religious reasons, but he he decides that he needs to kind of talk himself into a pro-choice position. And he he walked me through the painstaking 
intellectual gymnastics that he he went through to to find his way to taking a, a stance that he didn't really fully believe in, and you know it involved pouring over. Uh, statements by Mormon church leaders and Mormon scripture. He he even told me he found you know a statement from a a, a Latter Day Saint leader who had said abortion was like unto murder. And then he he kind of rationalized, well, but he doesn't say it is a murder. And so th- this is kind of it shows the 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 process of rationalization he would go through to convince himself that it was okay to take these positions. Uh, to to win an election. Now, what he told me though is that the the process of rationalization was necessitated by the fact that he was always grappling with this question of what was right and what was wrong. Right? He didn't bracket those questions, but he said, you know, when I took that pro-choice position, I could have passed a lie detector test. I could have told you with absolute certainty that this is what I believed. Um, and and he said that's the thing about rationalization. You do it so that you don't have to live with it. And I think that that was a process that he repeatedly went through throughout his his political career. Later, he often found himself taking positions that were more right wing than mm-hmm. than what he really believed. And what what I think is this is honestly one of the themes I found most fascinating about his career. And you'll see it pop up again and again yeah. in the book is that he. Uh, he uh, really provided an interesting window into the psychology of our political leaders, most of whom I believe start out with a set of principles and ideals that they think they're not going to compromise on and then find over time that they're constantly being asked to compromise and, and they they find their way in you know toward doing it without feel being racked with guilt. And I think that it's really it's really an interesting insight yeah. into how that happens. Well, um, hearing you say that Senator Romney told you he uh, sort of mastered the art of rationalization because you do it because you don't have to live with it. I mean, that definitely describes a great deal of you know both parties, but especially all the people who once spoke out against mm-hmm. Donald Trump in the Republican Party and, and subsequently embraced him. That is quite a statement. But But let's get back to... Um, eventually, obviously, Senator Romney, there were there were things that he could not live with, right? And he would not compromise on. And those came uh, most clearly with the two impeachment uh, mm-hmm. impeachments of Donald Trump. We'll come to that uh, in a moment. But you're right about this rationalization popping up over and over and over again in the book. Uh, I mean, first of all, let's just uh, go back to February 2nd of 2012. This is Romney's second presidential run. And he goes to Las Vegas to receive the endorsement of Donald Trump, someone who very clearly by that time Romney found extremely odious, right? But he went anyway. And in the book, McKay, you call this, quote, one of the more humiliating chores of Romney's political career. And here's what happened when Romney met uh, met Trump. It's my honor, real honor, and privilege to endorse Mitt Romney. Mitt is tough, he's smart, he's sharp. He's not going to allow bad things to continue to happen to this country that we all love. So, Governor Romney, go out and get him. You can do it.
There, there are some things that you just can't imagine happening in your life. Uh, this is one of them. Uh, <laughs> being in uh, Donald Trump's magnificent hotel and having his endorsement is a, a delight. I'm, I'm so honored and, uh, and pleased to have his endorsement. And of course, I'm looking for the endorsement of the people of Nevada. And, uh... Mitt Romney, February 2012. McKay, say you were to... <laughs> play that moment once again to Senator Romney now. What do you think his bodily or facial reaction might be? <laughs> I mean, I can say with a, uh, with some certainty because I've I've asked him about this and, you know, kind of pressed him to relive it a couple different times over the course of our interviews. He, I mean, look, he's he's embarrassed by it. He's chagrined. <laughs> he, he, he even in the moment. And I was actually there as a reporter covering that event in 2012. And I remember that, you know, when the, it came time for the photo op to shake Trump's hand, he sort of ever so slightly angled himself away from the camera. You could tell he was humiliated in the moment. And as I report in the book, this, this was not something he wanted to do. When, when the, the prospect of accepting Trump's endorsement publicly was first brought to him by his advisors, he shut it down. He said, there's no way I'm going to do that. But over time, over the course of you know, days and weeks, as he, he scanned the political landscape, he saw that he was still struggling to clinch the primaries. He, and he was warned that if he didn't accept Trump's endorsement, Trump would go endorse somebody else and that could breathe new life into one of his primary opponents. He sort of talked himself into it, right? And, and you see this happening again and again. His argument at the time, and still even now, he, he's, he can, can become defensive about it. Uh, is that Donald Trump at that time wasn't a serious political figure. He was a, a you know loudmouth celebrity. If Democrats can take endorsements from their own you know loudmouth celebrities, why can't I have the celebrity apprentice host you know endorse me? So that was sort of his rationalization. But it was clear in the moment and clear today that it, it was just he saw it as another thing he had to do to to win the mm-hmm. Republican nomination. Now, McKay, respectfully, I, I think that, uh, yeah, D- Senator Romney, in being still somewhat defensive of meeting with Trump in 2012, he's, I don't know, maybe it's kind of a form of psychic protection <laughs> that he's applying to himself. <laughs> no, because seriously, yeah. A, like if he wanted to get a, a, a celebrity in, celebrity endorsement from a, a, a right wing, um, you know, high profile person, I don't know, he could have gone to see Clint Eastwood. But, but... I see this as part of a pattern that you lay out in the book, right? You write about, first of all, you mentioned, you know, in 1964, he was at the Republican convention and, you know, watched Barry Goldwater and began to get this first realization of the creeping radicalization of the Republican Party. But then in the book, you also go over the fact that, well, Romney witnessed the Republican revolution under Newt Gingrich in the 90s. And then Mm -hmm. in 2008, uh, he didn't think the Tea Party was about much more than than the economy and the deficit. He just didn't see the rise of of Republican populism at that time. In 2012, as you note, he thinks, you know, Trump is a joke, but still has to go and get his endorsement. In 2016, he looks at Trump again and initially thinks, well, you know, Trump's campaign is a stunt. So what I don't understand mm-hmm. is how could such a consummate Republican insider like Mitt Romney Maybe he has a lot of personal political savvy, but he didn't have enough political savvy to see over the course of decades what was happening with the Republican Party. I mean, mm-hmm. how did he explain? It sounds like willful blindness to me, and I'm wondering how he explained that to you. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a certain degree of motivated reasoning going on here, right? He was constantly uh, convincing himself that each new manifestation of right-wing populism uh, was not as dangerous as as it was, right? Or that that it, it wasn't as big of a deal as it was being made out to be. And that's partly because he needed those voters to support him in his pursuit of the presidency. But I think that Mitt Romney's inability to see what was happening in his party, and he admits to it now, he tells me, you know, I, I just fundamentally missed it. The Tea Party for is a good example. He thought that he could appeal to the Tea Party voters by talking about deficit reduction and low taxes. And what he found over time is that when he got in front of those crowds, they didn't want to hear his 59-point plan to reduce the deficit. They wanted to hear you know, him talk about immigrants and terrorists and guns and the evils of abortion. And, you know, it, it, I think that he his, his inability to see that is emblematic of the whole kind of Mitt Romney wing of the party, right? There is this, the establishment of the party for so long had this idea that they could essentially coddle and, uh, you know, court and indulge those far right elements of the party and harvest their votes and harness their energy during elections. And then once the election was over, basically push them back to the side and say, we're in charge of the party, right? We're, we're still the grownups. We're the ones who are going to run the government and run the party. And, and the, that all of that is a sideshow. And what happened in 2016 is they found, they saw the result of, of coddling that element of the party for so long because that element of the party took over, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Donald Trump was obviously its manifestation, but it, the the movement that he represented, it, it's, a, it's the same voters who were Tea Party voters. And in a lot of ways, you know, there are a lot of, there are ideological differences, but in a lot of ways, it, they're drawing on the same kind of ugly themes that the Goldwater movement was drawing on, right? And so the, the, I, I think that, there, you call it willful blindness. I think there is a certain amount of that. Um, but it, it's also just the politics of bedfellows, right? The, these Republicans like Mitt Romney, they, they were trying to get to, in, in the way Romney memorably described it to me as his presidential ambition, 50.1% of the vote. Mm-hmm. And to, to get to 50.1% of the vote sometimes means draping your arm around unseemly characters and uh, you know, coddling voters that you would never want to spend time with when you're not running for president. And he sees that now in a way that he, he just refused to see it when he was running. Hmm. Well, McKay Coppins joins us today. His new book is Romney, A Reckoning, a biography of Republican Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. And we'll have much more when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast.
You're back with On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. On Friday, we're going to be talking about the state and local elections that just happened yesterday. A lot of news coming out of various states like Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio. So if you happen to live in those three states, we want to hear from you about the outcomes on various votes for your state legislature, governors, even uh, questions on abortion rights. What do you make of what happened in your states? And what do you want the rest of the country to know, even about school board races. So if you happen to live in Virginia, Kentucky, or Ohio, send us a message via the Vo- the OnPoint Vox Pop app. As I say almost every day, if you don't have it yet, why not? But head over to wherever you get your apps and look for OnPoint Vox Pop. You can also just call us at 617-353-0683. That's for Friday's show. McKay Coppins is my guest today. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the terrific new book, Romney, A Reckoning, a biography of Republican Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. Um, and McKay, I just really love the way... Um, you share how Romney summed up the 2016 GOP presidential hopefuls. Uh, he wanted Paul Ryan to run, but Ryan wasn't running. And then you you write that a Bush won't beat a Clinton. Chris is too angry. Kasich is too undisciplined. Scott Walker is too opportunistic. Perry is Perry. Marco lacks stature. Rand is wrong. And Ted is frightening. Was that honestly how Romney judged the field? I, I think that's that, that's probably a gentle oh, uh, uh, description of how we judge the field. I mean, look, Mitt Romney uh, spent a lot of time in the run-up to 2016, first of all, exploring his own third presidential bid, ultimately deciding against it. And then he spent time meeting with the various candidates. And he came away unimpressed. And what's interesting is, you know, I, I he gave me his journals, he gave me his email correspondence from that period. And uh, reading those emails and journal entries, it, it's an interesting foreshadowing of of how Donald Trump rose to power. Because, you know, first of all, he was fairly unimpressed with the field that was emerging, even though there were a lot of Republicans running. But he also quickly saw uh, especially once he tried to organize opposition to Trump behind the scenes, that these candidates and campaigns, while in public and even to him, they would say Donald Trump would be a catastrophe as president. He'd be a catastrophe for, for our party. Uh, they weren't willing to do anything to coordinate, to uh, you know, to to stop Trump from winning the nomination. And he he kind of realized how hard it was to get them to give up even a modicum of, of their own political advantage in the short term uh, to to stop Trump. And that kind of became a theme over the next really eight years of his, his career. Right. Because, you know, once Trump was left as the, uh, the last candidate standing uh, in the field, that's when we get a sense of uh, how public Senator Romney is willing to be about his, you know, mm-hmm. concerns for the party, the, his concerns for the country. Because, for example, on March 3rd, 2016, Romney scheduled a speech at the University of Utah. We've got a moment of it here. The topic was why Donald Trump must not be president. He's not of the temperament of the kind of stable, thoughtful person we need as leader. His imagination must not be married to real power. The president of the United States has long been the leader of the free world. The president and, yes, even the nominees of the country's great parties helped define America to billions of people around the world. All of them bear the responsibility of being an example for our children 
and our grandchildren. Think of Donald Trump's personal qualities, the bullying, the greed, the showing off, the misogyny, the absurd third grade theatrics. Now imagine your children and your grandchildren acting the way he does. Would you welcome that? That's Mitt Romney in 2016, in March of 2016. And now upon listening to it with uh, the echoes of the George Romney tape we played earlier, I can hear a very strong connection between uh, son Mm. and father there. But of course, I mean, Romney's a complicated character because just about everyone remembers that it was barely eight months later when in late November 2016, he still chose to sit down with Donald Trump in New York City to discuss the possibility of taking a job as Secretary of State within a new Trump administration. Now, eventually Romney did not do that, uh, we should note. But just after that dinner, November 29th, 2016, here's what Romney said. And what I've seen through these discussions I've had with President-elect Trump, uh, as well as what we've seen in his uh, speech at the uh, the night of his uh, victory, uh, as well as the people he selected as part of his transition, uh, all of those things combined uh, give me uh, increasing hope that President-elect Trump is the very man who can lead us to that uh, better future. Okay, so McKay, we've talked about uh, Romney explaining the powerful need for rationalization. So I don't want to go over that territory again. But at what point, McKay, after this, after 2016, does Senator Romney hit a point, like he crosses that Rubicon and he simply cannot rationalize anymore? Yeah, well, I think that that whole episode where the Secretary of State job is sort of dangled in front of him is sort of his last temptation in a way, right? (laughs) Um, He had one more chance to sell out his principles and join the Trump administration, get a very high profile job. You know, he didn't take it. And I report on all the what happened behind the scenes there. But it, it was really after that, the the and tr- once Trump took office um, and Romney watched over the next, you know, first hundred days of his presidency and beyond uh, just how bad things could get with him in office, that Romney made up his mind that he would never uh, be able to kind of be on board with this. Right. And um, it's interesting because, you know, it, it's not long after Trump takes office that he's approached about running for Senate in Utah. And the the reason he, he decides to do it is, is effectively that he thinks he can get to the Senate and steer his party away t- from Trumpism, right? He has this kind of fantasy that uh, Trump is going to be remembered as this one-off fluke. And, you know, there's still a lot of good people in the party. They just need a voice. They need somebody like me, the former presidential nominee, to, to get in there and, and empower them to, to speak out. And uh, once he got to the Senate, he realized that would be much more difficult than, than he thought. Mm. Well, on February 5th, 2020, Mitt Romney became the first senator in U.S. history to vote to remove a president of his own party from office. That was his first uh, guilty vote in Donald Trump's first impeachment trial. Uh, First of all, before we're going to play a moment of uh, the speech that Romney gave uh, on that February day. But McKay, can you just take a second to describe 
how Romney came to that decision, because you write about it so vividly, of this man sort of sitting there in his lonely Washington condo, reading Federalist 65, and trying to <laughs> trying to reconcile how, according to him, most of the members of his own party didn't even take the the thinking through process of the uh, of the impeachment mm-hmm. trials seriously. Well, this was the thing that really that really frustrated him. He believed from his own study of constitutional scholarship and the Federalist Papers, you know, he he had this very sincere approach to an impeachment trial. And he believed that senators were called upon to set aside their partisan prejudices and act as impartial jurors in a trial. And what alarmed him was how the rest of his caucus just completely disregarded that that role. In, In fact, he you know, he told me that um, in one early caucus meeting, uh, early on in the process, Mitch McConnell explicitly advised the Republican senators that they shouldn't think of themselves as jurors, that this is a political process and they should act like politicians. And that's how they acted. And it drove Romney crazy. <laughs> um, I can tell you from reading his journals and also from just talking to him, because he would repeatedly have Republican senators sidle up to him in private and say, you know, I'm glad you're out there doing what you're doing and saying what you're saying about Trump. I wish I could do the same thing. But, you know, I I have a reelection to think about. Mm. And, you know, for Romney, it just it it made him it, 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 it just profoundly disappointed him because this was his party. The the a lot of these are people that he he respected. They he considered them allies, even friends. And to see them all just so brazenly make this calculation that they they're not even going to engage in the impeachment process yeah. uh just for their own partisan you know reasons it it, it frustrated him but you know like his, his vote i will say it, it was really difficult for him to take he wanted very badly to vote with the rest of his party to acquit trump because he knew it would be easier for him it, you know his family wouldn't face any blowback he could just kind of like go go along with his party like he had for a lot of his political career. But in weighing the evidence and and going through the trial, he just determined there was no way around the fact that Trump was guilty of abuse of power. And to vote against uh, his conscience in that moment was just something he couldn't do anymore. He, He couldn't take one more vote that he didn't believe in. Well, so here he is on February 5th, 2020, just before uh, he's on the Senate floor here just before voting uh, Trump as guilty in that first impeachment trial. As a senator juror, I swore an oath before God to exercise impartial justice. I am profoundly religious. My faith is at the heart of who I am. I take an oath before God as enormously consequential. I knew from the outset that being tasked with judging the president, the leader of my own party, would be the most difficult decision I have ever faced. I was not wrong. That's Mitt Romney on February 5th, 2020. Now, McKay, he also told you that he had come to recognize, quote, the overwhelming consideration in how people vote is whether it will help or hurt their re-election prospects. And he says, it's amazing that a democracy can function like this. I don't know, McKay, when I read that quote, I just kept wondering, how naive was Mitt Romney 
until very, very recently, because I think a lot of Americans have seen for years, decades even, that the need for re-election is prime—it it holds primacy in how um, a lot of members of Congress behave. Yeah, you know, I think that it's one thing to know that intellectually, and I'm sure he knew that intellectually. I mean, in in part because he had often <laughs> he had often fallen victim to the same mentality, right? He had done things that he wouldn't have otherwise done, taken positions he wouldn't have otherwise taken to win election or re-election. So he he understands that intellectually, but I think it's a different thing to be in the Senate at this high stakes moment in American political history. And, and see his colleagues repeatedly doing things and saying things in private that are, vi- you know, completely different from what they say in public. The context for that quote, though, is interesting. It, it was actually uh, after the Uvalde shooting, mm-hmm. um, the, the shooting at the elementary school, where a bipartisan uh, gun safety bill had been put together and it was presented to the Republican caucus and Mitt Romney kind of looked around over an hour-long caucus meeting and listened as one Republican senator after another complained about the politics of this bill and, you know, said, we're in an election year. I don't want to have to take a bad vote. Uh, this is a lose-lose for my campaign. Why are we being forced to take up this divisive issue when we're up for re-election? And, and what drove Mitt crazy, and he told his his staff about it afterward, was that not a single comment in that meeting was about the substance of the bill and whether it would lead to fewer gun deaths in America. Mm-hmm. And I think th- seeing things like that was really eye-opening for him because, like you said, I mean, you're right. He, he's he's not naive. He knows that re-election is a constant motivating factor in political leaders' lives. To see how it overshadows everything else, to see it overshadow even something like the, you know, gun deaths after a mass shooting at an elementary school, I think it hits home in a different way. Yeah. And, and that's where where you see that frustration come through. So I also want to note that the way you write about Romney's harrowing experience on January 6, 2021, I just could not put the book down. There's so much excellent reporting in there, folks. You really do need to to read it because a lot (laughs) of it's quite shocking. Um, But it put me in mind of, you know, after the attack, uh, when we have the the second impeachment trial, I will never forget all these television shots of Romney still wearing his COVID Mm. masks, right, sitting behind speakers in the Senate, like smoldering with anger, you know, particularly Mm -hmm. when Mitch McConnell gets up and gives this morally righteous speech about the sanctity of the Senate, full on blames Donald Trump, but then still votes Trump as innocent in that second impeachment trial. It just that's seared into my mind. But in the last minute or so that we have here, McKay, so much of your book has this sort of lion in winter feel, right? Both Mm -hmm. because of, you know, perhaps Romney has nothing left to lose politically anymore. He's not running for Senate again. But also, I suppose a person comes to a time in their lives where they are taking stock. So, you know, how does he view his role in the uh, transformation of the Republican Party? And what lesson do you think he wants everyone to take from him talking with you over 40 plus interviews? Well, you know, when he speaks to audiences of young people, students or people coming through his office on tours of the Capitol, they often ask him, what advice do you have for us? And the advice he often gives is 
don't sacrifice your principles at the altar of ambition. Um, and and he, he sometimes adds, it's not worth it, believe me, or something along those lines. And I think that reflects a man who is now at the end of his career. He's at the end of nearing the end of his life. And he's looking back and, and saying, look, in the moment, there is always so much pressure to do something you, you know is wrong because it'll help you in the short term. Resist that pressure because when you reach the end of your life, the end of your career, you're, you're going to regret it. And, and I think that that's a, a lesson that he's followed in this last chapter of his life, and, and he hopes that others will as well. Well, the new book is Romney, A Reckoning, a biography of Republican Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. We have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. McKay Coppins, thank you so much for the book, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 